Well, good afternoon, Soul City Church. How you doing this afternoon? So, okay, let, let's try it again. How you doing this afternoon? Ah, wow. Oh, I didn't know. That's very natural and spontaneous. Uh, I appreciate you doing that. Uh, good afternoon. My name is Jarrett Stevens. I'm one of the lead pastors here at Soul City Church, and it's so good to be with you, 1230. It's so good to be with you today. Uh, th- this is a special time and a special season for our church. I'm not sure if you were here last week, uh, but last week over our three gatherings, we baptized 60 people here in our church. How amazing is that? We got a powerful picture of what transformation looks like in public as people said yes to Jesus and got into the waters of baptism. We all got to celebrate that as a church family. It's so fun. There's a group of high school kids that travel in from the suburbs every week to our church. And they told me the week before that they were going to their prom Saturday night, and then they were all coming with all their dates and all their friends to get baptized on Sunday morning. How powerful is that? They were here again this morning. I just, that kind of faith and the way they lead out and and living for Jesus is inspiring to me. And so what a fun uh, weekend for us. We are in a teaching series called Eyewitness as we are looking towards the cross and what Jesus did for us and then looking to an empty tomb, what God did for us through his death and resurrection. As we prepare our hearts for Easter, we're looking at key moments in the life of Jesus where people actually got an eyewitness experience. They got to experience the power and presence of Jesus and then they had a story to tell, a story that we are actually still telling to this uh, day. And uh, we're going to continue in that by looking at this beautiful eyewitness experience of grace and what happens when someone looks directly in the eyes of Jesus and what they see and how some people can do the same thing and walk away. So this last weekend, I was traveling a, a little bit and uh, this last week and weekend, and I was coming back home and I couldn't wait to be home and miss Jeannie and miss the kids. So I'm at the airport and listen, you know, I, I travel a little bit. Like I don't, I'm not like a novice. I kind of feel like I know what I'm doing. And so uh, a couple years ago, I went through the work of becoming TSA pre-approved because I just want to, you know, I want to do my part uh, and I don't want to have to be with uh, the rest of the normals in line. And so uh, go ahead and raise your hand if you're TSA pre. Go ahead and raise, oh, look at that. This is incredible. Okay, those of you who are TSA pre, just look how many hands went up. You know, it's not such a special club anymore, is it? (laughs) If they let me in, they'll let anybody in. And so I was at the airport, I went to my TSA pre-section, and I'm looking at some of the folks in line, and I do like some quick maths when I get to a security checkpoint. I kind of do the number of older folks uh, times the number of young families divided by business travelers. That's how I kind of pick which line to get into. And so I thought I picked the right line, it all looked right, but oh man, I picked the wrong line. And there was like someone there taking off their belt and taking off their shoes and pulling their laptop out. I'm like, no, we're past this now. You don't have to do this. That's the whole point of the TSA pre is we keep moving. And, uh, and then some guy, of course, had a water bottle. That's, you don't bring a water bottle to TSA pre. That's amateur hour. Step up your game. And so I found myself getting really frustrated and really, if I'm being really honest with you, really judgmental of people that I had never met before, all because I wanted to get to my gate three or four minutes faster. I, I was amazed at the incredible stuff that came up in my heart in that moment. And it brought up a good question that I think all of us need to consider. Maybe it's not a question you've ever asked yourself before, but I bet, you, I bet you've thought it in one way or another. Here's the question I want us to consider as we move into the text today. Uh, what do you do with all the people uh, who aren't as good as you? <laughs> yeah, I said it. <laughs> you have to. What do you do with all the people who aren't as good 
as you are, like when you're at the TSA security line? What do you do with all those people who don't know what to do? What do you do with all the people uh, who don't know how to drive as well as you know how to drive? You know how to drive like a boss. What do you do with all these people that don't know how to drive or who don't know how to park in the city? Or and it looks like they don't know how to park at all and they just happen to be in the city. What do you do? What are your thoughts that you have? The words, the names that begin to form that maybe you vocalize or don't. What are the what, what, what do you do with, with, with all the people who, who don't vote the same as you? Oh, oh okay, we're going to talk about that. Okay. <laughs> what do you do with all the people that don't hold the same political convictions that you hold? What do you, okay, what do you do with all the people that don't view marriage the way you view it? What do you do with them? What are your thoughts about them? How do you feel about them? What do you do with all the people that can't seem to get their lives together as much as you seem to have your life together? What do you do with them? What are your thoughts, stories? judgments that you have about them? What do you do with people who come from a different culture than you? And you don't understand their culture, and so clearly there's something wrong with it because you don't understand it. What do you do with those folks? What do you do with all the people who aren't as enlightened as you are? Or let me put it a little more plainly. What do you do with all the people who aren't as right (laughs) as you are? See, all of us actually have those beliefs. We call them judgments in our hearts about others, people that we know, and lots of times people we've never met. In fact, you can have judgments about whole people groups that form in your heart and come up quicker than you want to admit. What do you do with all the people who aren't as good as you? This was the question of the religious leaders of Jesus' day, and I would contend that it's a question religious people still struggle with to this day. What do you do with all the folks that aren't as good and don't have it all together and don't believe what you believe, aren't as spiritual as you are? Well, in just a few words, Jesus tells us exactly what to do with all of our self-righteous, judgmental, and condemnation that we have in our hearts. And he paints a picture of what grace really looks like in real time for all of us who need it and all of us who think we don't. So grab a Bible and open to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be a Soul City Bible right under your seat. Grab that and turn to page 868 in the Soul City Bible. John chapter 8, page 868. And we're going to look at a moment of grace. Someone got to eyewitness grace in action. And we want to look at their responses. Two groups of people. We're going to find ourselves in the midst of them today. Quick context into John chapter 8. Jesus is well into his public ministry, already built his disciples, his team. He's already performed miracles. He's already done healings. He's already done lots of teaching. And along the way, Jesus has actually built up quite a reputation for himself. Why? Because Jesus actually likes to hang out with, chooses to hang out with people who have a bad reputation. He seems to be drawn to people with bad reputations. This gave him a bad reputation by proxy, and the religious leaders of Jesus' day wanted to destroy his reputation and hopefully take him off off the board, if at all possible. So that's how we come into this moment. The religious leaders of Jesus' day had set up the perfect trap to publicly humiliate Jesus. So let's look at what happened. John chapter 8, verse 2. It says, oh, and let me pause real quick. Uh, You've been here, you know we do this. If you're new around here, when I'm reading from the Bible, every week we read from God's word, I pause at certain words. That's a cue for you to shout out the next word. Does that make sense? I just want everyone to understand the rules that we're playing by here. It's not because I've lost my place. It's so that you get to engage in God's word, and I get to know who's actually uh, awake. So if you uh, would do that, anytime I pause, you shout back. Here's a great, if you're worried about that, you're nervous about that, it's an open book test literally, and the answers are on the board. You cannot fail at this. All right, so that being said, let's try that. Uh, John chapter 8, verse 2, at when, at 
dawn. Now pay attention to that because it's really important. Early in the morning, 1230, uh, dawn is when the sun uh, comes up. It's when the day, I'm not sure if you know, but it's when the day starts. And so this is very, very, very early in the morning we see Jesus. And it says that he appeared where? In the temple courts. Now this is, context really matters here. So it's early in the morning, and Jesus is in one of the most sacred, spiritual, holy places, the center of Jewish worship. He's in the temple courts, which wasn't uncommon for him to do. He was a rabbi, and so he would teach in the context of the temple. Lots of times outside the temple, but this moment happens to be in the temple courts. And it says where all the people had gathered around him, and then it says, and he sat down to teach. Now, in those days, when a rabbi would teach, they would gather a group of people, kind of huddle around them. And what a rabbi would do is they would sit down on the ground, sort of like crisscross applesauce, and they would sit there. And when the rabbi sat down, that's when the teaching would begin. And I'm going to be honest, I stand up here every week and preach, this is nice. This is not, I might start incorporating this ancient tradition. And so say, oh, another thing, the reason why they would sit down like this is so that they could preach for hours and hours on end which I also might start doing. You don't know. I might start doing that. And so the rabbi would sit, and when the rabbi would sit and begin to teach, no podium, no microphone, no notes. They would teach the heart of God to the people of God, and people would stand and huddle around them. So you kind of get a massive crowd, people kind of leaning in to see the rabbi as the rabbi would teach. So there's Jesus sitting down in the temple courts about to preach. He's just about to get to his first opening joke. It's a really funny one. But then he gets interrupted and something happens. The religious leaders of the day interrupt the moment. Let's look what happens. John chapter 3, John chapter 8 verse 3. It says the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. And it says that they made her what? They made her stand before the group. So just a moment ago, they were all looking down to Jesus in this moment of teaching. And now this woman is brought in in the middle of an act of adultery, and now their eyes are drawn to her, and they're looking down on her in contempt and judgment because they could tell what was going on. Now notice how the religious leaders of the day brought this woman in and how they treated her. She's nothing more than a prop to them. She's bait. At her lowest moment, And they've taken away the last shreds of decency in her by dragging her out in public, probably wrapped in the sheet that she was just lying in. And they drag her not only in front of Jesus, but in front of a whole crowd, and not only in some random street corner, in the heart of the temple. These are the religious leaders. That's what they're actually up to. They don't care about humiliating her because all they want to do is humiliate Jesus. Verse 4. They brought her to Jesus and said to Jesus, teacher, you can see the mock respect there. Oh, teacher, Uh, this woman was, what's the word? This woman was caught. It's a very active word there. We caught her in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. We're supposed to stone her. That's the judgment for adultery. Now, teacher, what do you say? You see the setup that they've got going on here? They came with stones in their hand, actually, as we'll see in a moment. They came ready to kill her. And they bring her out there not as some sort of metaphorical scenario. They've tried that with Jesus before. They actually now bring a real live human being to the scene and say, Jesus, uh, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law says it was given to Moses thousands of years ago that we are supposed to stone her. So what do you say? What do you think we should do here, Jesus? Now, this is why they thought it was such a perfect trap. Here's why. Because if Jesus were to be, say, you know, if he were to say, 
Oh, guys, come on, let her go, let her go, let her go, give her a break. Well, then that shows that he's soft on the law. He doesn't respect the law. In fact, it was Jesus himself who said, I've not come to abolish the law, I've come to fulfill the law, every single letter of it. I am the completion of the law and the prophets. So if Jesus were to let her go, then he's soft on the law and they've got him. He loses his respect from the people. Or if he were to say, you know, you're right, the law does say, I mean, that's in the book, so you might as well go ahead and pick up your stones. Well, then he's in real trouble with the occupying power of Rome because Rome didn't actually allow Jews to perform their own executions. It's why if you pay attention to the crucifixion, it was done by Roman soldiers. Rome, the state, handled executions. And so if Jesus were to order her execution, now they've politically got him. Now he's in trouble with Rome. Do you see how they're just going, oh, they're just rubbing their grubby little hands together. Oh, we've got him. We've totally set him up. This is the perfect, either way, we've got him. It's the perfect trap. Except these guys totally blew it. They forgot who they were messing with. They hadn't paid attention to their previous defeats. Because these rule makers and these rule keepers forgot to play by the rules. You have any rule keepers in your life? Maybe you're a rule keeper, you love the rules. Rules are there so that all of us benefit. Like you really appreciate, you don't like when other people break the rules. Our son Elijah loves the rules. He wants to know what the rules are so that he can accomplish those. He's a firstborn, so rules are really important. Tell me what it is. Okay, got it. And in fact, he loves the rules so much, uh, he is actually, in our family, he is the undefeated game master in our family. It doesn't matter what game we play, he beats us every single day time. It's because he actually pays attention to the rules of the game. He takes time when we're unfolding the pieces to read the instructions. And he's gotten so good, at, especially at Monopoly, he knows the rules so well at Monopoly that he can even bend the rules towards his favor at times, and I don't even know because I don't know the rules. And he'll say, oh, no, Dad, you have to pay me four times the amount when you land on that. I'm like, really? I don't remember. He's like, yep, it's in the rules. And I don't know if it is or if it isn't, but he says it so convincingly, I just go, all right, here's all my money. I'll just pay it, pay it over to him. Now, listen, I'm not accusing my son of being a cheater. I'm just saying he's a winner, and he does whatever it has to do to get to that point. So he knows the rules so well that he can kind of bend them, and that's exactly kind of what's happening here. See, they, they, they brought up these rules, this ancient rule, this law of Moses, but they forgot to read the fine print. Because according to the law of Moses, what they are citing here about adultery, for someone to be charged for the act of adultery, both parties have to be present. And do you notice who it is, the only person they've brought here? It's the woman. See, we've done this for hundreds of thousands of years. We cast all the shame and blame on women often, while men typically get off. Thankfully, that's changing in our culture right now. But it's not new. It's not new. So they parade her out. Where's the man? He clearly had to be involved. I mean, I'm not going to go into that talk. That's another message for another time. But he had to be there. He's not here in this moment. But they said, oh, Jesus, we caught this woman in the act of adultery. And you kind of know the law and you know what it says. Where is the man? Odds are what happened is that they actually colluded with the man to set her up. Actually, probably what happened is that they paid him off to sell her out so they could have this moment, this trap, to humiliate Jesus. How messed up is that? These are the religious leaders of the day. And according to the same law of Moses that they're citing, you actually have to have two or three credible witnesses 
present to make this accusation and to pass judgment. You have to have two or three witnesses to the act. That's incredibly awkward. I'm not going to go into the details of that, but it's the law that you have to have two or three people say, we know these people, we know what they're up to, we can stand and say and bear witness that they but they're, they offer no witnesses. They offer no witnesses. There's no man, there's no witnesses. And think about this just for a second. How do these religious leaders happen to know when this woman would be caught in the act of adultery? How did they just happen to be there then? Do you think they were just out for their morning prayer walk, Lord, just Lord? When their eyes are closed, we just bless you for this day, Lord. And they didn't notice that they happened to walk into someone's house, Lord. We just thank you for this house, Lord. And then they just happened to walk into someone's bedroom. Oh, Lord, oh, what have we walked in on? Oh, heavens to Betsy. Oh, no, 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 no. This whole thing was a setup from the giddy-up. They were out to get Jesus, and so they were going to use this woman to do so. They set her up, took advantage of her so that they could have a moment to try and take advantage of Jesus. Please get this for a moment. They most likely committed several sins along the way just to catch her in the act of one. That's how blind they were. That's how caught up they were in their own judgments about Jesus and about women like this. They used this woman and Jesus is having none of it. He sees right through it, and they're mistreating of this woman. He is having none of it. He is time's up before it was a hashtag. He calls them on their bluff, and he says this to the religious leaders as they're getting so preoccupied in their piety that they actually fail to see their own blind spots. He calls them out on the fact that they are actually condemning others for their outward actions and choices without even examining their own internal motives. He calls out what they cannot see in themselves. It's their own self-righteousness. And the truth about self-righteous people like me is that self-righteousness is self-sabotage. It blinds you and it blindsides you every time. Anytime that you make yourself better than someone else, you lose. You're worse off for it. Anytime you try and prop yourself up, well, I'm not like them. Well, I'm not like them. Well, I don't do that. That's self-righteousness. And it's self-sabotage. It always catches up to you every single time. This is the sin of the Pharisees. And I want you to see how Jesus handles it. Verse 6, they were using this question about this woman caught in the act of adultery as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing Jesus. But look what Jesus does. It says that Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. Now this is an interesting moment. Interestingly enough, we actually don't see Jesus write anything anywhere else in the gospel accounts. The only time we ever actually see him write anything. And he chooses at this moment in the morning in the temple where they had come to, for hundreds and hundreds of years, they had come to worship the law that God had given, the law written by the finger of God into stone. Jesus is now, the finger of Jesus is writing something else in the dust on the floor of the temple. And, and, and for hundreds of years, Pastors and preachers and authors and theologians have speculated at what it was that Jesus was writing on the ground in front of this crowd. Some speculate that maybe what Jesus was doing in this moment was that he was actually writing out the law of Moses that they were citing with every bullet point that they had fumbled and messed up along the way. And every point he made, they begin to realize, what have we done? What have we done? Some people actually think that Jesus just began writing out the Ten Commandments. And the further he kept going down the list, the more they realized how many they had broken in bringing this woman to this moment. 
Some people think that all Jesus was actually doing was doodling. I'm not kidding. There's like books on this. That they just thought the theory, the theory is that Jesus just like playing tic-tac-toe with himself just on the <laughs> ground. And the reason being is because he was drawing the attention away, all the eyes of judgment, shame, and scorn on this woman down to the ground and away and off of her as an act of dignity and preservation for her character and soul. Some people think that what Jesus were, was writing on the ground was each of their names, starting with the oldest ones there, writing their names down, and then just listing out their sins. Whatever he was that he was writing, John was there, John was an eyewitness, he decided not to include it in the text because ultimately it doesn't matter. It doesn't really matter. What Jesus was doing here in this moment was he was completely flipping the script on them. And he was making a bigger point about the law and in painting a beautiful picture of grace. Verse 7. They kept on questioning him. Isn't this awesome? So Jesus is drawn to the sand. They get more frustrated. Answer the question, Jesus. We went through a lot to get here. I'm probably going to lose my job for this. Answer the question, Jesus. They're getting more and more frustrated. So look what he says. He straightened up and he said to them, Well, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone. Okay, you want my judgment? You want my verdict? Here it is. Any one of you who is without sin, you get to throw the first stone. See, you have to remember who the only one there, who was the only one there that was without sin in that moment? Jesus. He's the only one ever to make it through this life without sin, trusting God completely all the way through. So he says, okay, well, if any of you are without sin, you get to actually cast the first stone. See, the only one who was actually qualified to judge there was Jesus. He literally held this woman's fate in his hands. But look what he does, verse 8. I love it. It says, again, he just stooped down and went back to writing on the ground. I just love that he's not letting himself get caught up in the trumped-up drama of this moment. He's like, you can just see Jesus just going right back, going, hmm, and going right back to the ground like, I'm going to let you all think about that one for a minute. I'll be over here with my OG Etch-A-Sketch, just kind of making some stuff going on over here. Y'all sort it out and let me know when you decide who among you is without sin. Well, it worked. Verse 9. At this, those who heard what Jesus had said and got what he was doing began to walk away one at a time. Look what John points out the next detail. The older ones first until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there right where they brought her. It was a powerful moment. Every one of them came with their stones of condemnation, their stones of judgment. And whatever it was that Jesus did on the ground, the words that he said about anyone who's without sin casting the first stone, there was a sound that was heard throughout the temple courts that echoed throughout the city. And it was the sound people dropping their stones and walking away. Deafening sound. All throughout the temple courts until the self-righteous religious leaders of the day sulked off with their self-righteous tails between their legs and the crowd eventually slowly shuffled away. Whatever it was that Jesus did, whatever it was that he 
said. Either way, it worked. John points out the fact that the older ones walked away first. It's an interesting little note that John gives us there. Why do you think he made us pay attention to the older ones walking away first? Well, I think it's, it's possible that it has to do with something that comes with maturity, not always, but sometimes comes with maturity, and that is humility. That the older you get and the more you know, the more you realize you don't have it all figured out. Not always. Some people double down. <laughs> but lots of times with maturity, the gift is humility. And I know this because as I get older, I realize when I was younger, in my 20s and in my 30s, how right I was. I was so right. And if you didn't agree with me, you were so wrong. You don't even know. I'm so right. In fact, I'm so right. I'm going to tell you about it on Facebook. I'm going to let you know about it. I'm going to let everyone who has a conversation with me know about how right I am. And there's just a gift that comes. Not, not everyone accepts it with maturity, and that's humility. And it's possible that these older religious leaders, the longer they had lived, the more sins they had stacked up and the more lessons they had learned, the more they realized they didn't actually have a thing figured out about God. In fact, in this moment, they had it all backwards. So they walk off, they sulk off, and they leave this woman alone with Jesus. Now, Richard Rohr writes about this idea that we see played out in this scenario of uh, ancient culture, and really, honestly, every culture. It's called the honor-shame uh, culture. And so what you have is in cultures is you have honor and shame. And you have those folks that who play by the rules, those who... Uh, kind of, you know, abide by the rules, keep all the rules. We honor them. We celebrate them. We hold them up. But then there's the people who don't play by the rules, who break the rules, who continue to mess up, make mistakes. We shame them. This kind of helps us have a framework for knowing who's in, who's out, who's right, who's wrong, and more specifically, where I'm at in the midst of it all. Philip Yancey actually takes that idea and goes a little further and says, really what's on display here in this moment is two types of understandings of two different types of people. There are the sinners, and then there are the righteous. So the sinners in this scenario would be the woman caught in the act of adultery. That's obvious. She's a sinner, right? She did something wrong. She's a sinner. But then we have the religious leaders, the Pharisees. They're righteous. They keep the law. They make laws. They're the ones that we should hold up high. And in one stroke of sand across the temple floor, Jesus completely changes the whole framework. He says, no, 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 no. You've got it all wrong. There are two types of people, but it's not what you think. Really, all there are are sinners who are willing to admit and sinners who continued to deny. Sinners who were willing to confess, this is who I am. This is what I've done. This is what's really going on in my heart. And then there's sinners who can't wait to condemn, who don't want to look inside at themselves, and so all they do is fix their eyes on the outside of everyone else. That really is the two groups of people, and the question is for each of us to consider, which one are you? Which one are you? Which one am I? Am I a sinner who's ready to admit? Or do I like to kind of hold on and make sure everyone knows I'm right and justified? And to do that, I'll point out all your flaws if I have to. The text tells us that every one of them walked away until just two were left. Jesus and this woman, verse 10, says this. Jesus straightened up, again, straightened up. And asked her, and I love this, woman, where are they? Such a beautiful rhetorical question. Where, well, where'd they go? Where are they? Has no one condemned you? 
Has no one here, I know you, you knew this was game over for you. Has no one here left to condemn you? Can you imagine if you're that woman looking into the eyes of Jesus, the one who actually held the authority, who could judge, could end your life. Can you imagine looking into his eyes in that moment, still wrapped in the sheet that they brought you in? Look what she says, verse 11, no one, sir, no one, no one's here to condemn me. Then Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. I won't condemn you either. But he says, go now and leave your life of sin. There is so much more. Leave your life of sin. In one sentence, Jesus does three powerful things. In one sentence, Jesus acknowledges that there was sin. There actually was sin. He chooses not to condemn her for it, and he invites her into a transforming life, a new life. All in one sentence, he accomplishes those three things. He acknowledges that there's sin. He doesn't soft shoe around and be like, look, I get it. It was awkward. They broke into the room. I'm going to give you a pass on this one. I get it. You were in a loveless marriage. I totally understand. He wasn't soft on sin. He said, yeah, there's a life of sin. Didn't ignore that. But he also didn't condemn her for that. And you had to believe as she was dragged into that temple courts, that's what she thought was coming her way, condemnation and ultimately her own execution, death. But he chose not to condemn her in that moment. And in fact, what he did is he invited her into new life, a transforming life with him, free from sin and free from condemnation. I wonder if this is why so often, I am so afraid to just come clean with God. And maybe you are so often so afraid to, to just come clean with God because you're so afraid of this. You're so afraid that he's going to condemn you, that he's going to judge you, that he would want nothing to do with you if you were to be all of who you are with him. And yet this woman got to be an eyewitness to a truth that I think every one of us needs to pay attention to. In this moment with Jesus and in every moment that you're with Jesus, in, listen to me, condemnation just isn't present in Jesus' presence. It's not. Condemnation isn't present in Jesus' presence. There's just no room for it. This is why Paul wrote in Romans 8, 1, that therefore there now is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is zero condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, in relationship with him, and in his presence. In the presence of Jesus, condemnation just is not present. He doesn't condemn you. And what that means is in his presence, we don't condemn others because there's no room for condemnation in the presence of Jesus. We don't condemn others. See, sadly, too many churches have been built with these stones. Too many churches have been built with stones of judgment and condemnation 
Too many churches have been built with stones to keep out those who don't see it the way that they do, to keep out those who don't look or appear to have it all together like they do. Too many churches are built with these kinds of stones who say, well, these are the folks who count and matter to God and everyone else. I'm sorry. I mean, that's just how it is. Too many churches are built with these kinds of stones, built on the the basis of of bias, and anyone who doesn't believe or see it like they do, they're just not welcome. And the crazy thing is, is there will always be people ready to join those kind of churches. That's not the kind of church we're building here. That's not what God's actually up to here. So you, you, you can't, listen, you cannot hold Jesus' hand in one hand and the stone in the other. It doesn't work that way. You can't hold Jesus' hand and be like, yeah, well, I got Jesus on my side, so I'm a, he's kind of giving me the authority to do this in your life. Nope, doesn't work that way. You can't hold Jesus' hand in one hand and hold a stone in the other. Condemnation just isn't present. It's not allowed in the presence of Jesus. It's not from God. And if you want to know what actually has the power to crush these stones. I, I wanted to. Um, I wanted to actually blow up a rock today. Um, I thought it'd be cool. One, we don't have the budget, and two, it's a newish building, so I didn't want to do any uh, damage to it. But there is something that has the power to literally obliterate our preoccupation with condemnation. One, our fear of it coming from God, and one, our love of it when it goes towards others. Do you know what it is that actually just crushes and demolishes condemnation? It's confession. Confession crushes condemnation. It takes the power out of the fear we have of it and the love we have for it. When I confess, when I come clean with God, when I can admit all of who I am and all of who I'm not, I realize there is no condemnation for those who are in the presence of Christ Jesus. When you confess all that you've done and all that you've refused to do, all your fear may be that God's going to judge and condemn you and throw you out of relationship with him, but then you find there's actually more freedom, like Jesus offered this woman, more freedom on the other side. When you get in touch with how out of touch you've been with God's love, it frees you, it opens your life up. And when you come into the presence of Jesus, as you are, and ask for forgiveness and freedom. He gives it to you. He grants it to you. And you find, as this woman did, there's no condemnation here. There's only grace upon grace. Love everlasting. And you are invited into a new way of living in the presence of Jesus, free from sin, free from condemnation confession, this thing that every single one of us can do, this thing that we're all going to do in a moment, crushes condemnation in each and every one of us. You know, recently we lost a hero of the faith, someone who uh, is revered and respected around the world. A couple weeks ago, um, Billy Graham, this amazing faith leader, uh, passed away And I don't know that we'll ever really truly know this humble giant's legacy until we get to eternity and see how many millions of lives 
uh, entered into a relationship with Jesus because of him. He preached the same message that we talked about today from Jesus. Do you know that? He preached the same message. He helped millions and millions of people actually recognize and come to grips with and confess their sin. And he didn't condemn them for it. In fact, he invited people into a new and a transforming relationship with Jesus. See, Billy Graham never once threw a stone. It's why he could meet with presidents and peasants, why he could meet with Republicans and Democrats. It's why he was loved and respected across denominational lines and across religious belief systems because he chose to never pick up one of these. It's a powerful legacy to leave behind. And years and years and years ago, Billy Graham said something that I've never been able to get out of my head. He kind of helped us remember who does what when it comes to God. He says this, he said, when it comes to our relationship with God and with others, it's the Holy Spirit's job to convict. That's the Holy Spirit's job. And you may have thought otherwise. No, 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 God's a little short-staffed this week. He's asked me to hop in and let you know how you're doing it wrong. And how, no, I got to let you know that, you know, you can kind of look at my life because I've got it all together and you should be more like, nope, not how it works. Not your job. It's the Holy Spirit's job to convict. It's ultimately God's job to judge. And God is a righteous and holy judge. In fact, he's a judge who said, here's how we're going to do things. I'm going to place my blameless, perfect, sinless son in your place. And he will stand on your behalf. And the punishment that would be coming to you, he'll take upon himself. That's Easter. That's what we celebrate. He says, here's your job. Your job is to love. Holy Spirit's job to convict, God's job to judge, your job is actually to love. It's not your job to condemn, it's not your job to convict, to justify, to judge, it's your job to love, to love God with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength, to love others as they are, not how you want them to be, and to love yourself as you are, and to see yourself as God sees you and all of the glory of who he created you to be. See, in the presence of Jesus, there's just, condemnation isn't present. Judgment isn't present. We don't have any place for that. And maybe you've been coming here to Soul City for a while, and you're trying to figure out sort of which camp are you in. Am I more like this woman caught in the act, or am I more like these religious leaders? And maybe you come here every week and you, you've got kind of your things that really matter to you and that's beautiful. They're your convictions, they're your beliefs and their values and, and you're kind of hoping that I, like, I say it the way you see it. Like you really want to make sure that I say it the way you see it. Or whoever's up here preaching, make, make sure you tell them about this, Jared. Make sure you tell them about this. They got to know about this. And you kinda, you're so kind of locked into that. That's a great thing. It's a fine thing. But anytime I don't say it the way you see it, ooh, you find yourself kind of rising up. Oh, man, he, you got to make sure I'm going to start writing to write him an email and let him know <laughs> he didn't say it the way I see it. And I, I may not say it the way you see it. I may not see it the way you see it. But do you have the humility to go that you may not see it all perfectly and completely either? And if you find yourself getting triggered and all that kind of stuff rising up in you, then there may be feelings of condemnation that are still kind of working their way through your body, through your life. And in a moment, we're going to give you a chance to just confess those. Confess them. Confess them. Crush that, whatever that feeling of condemnation is. Or maybe for you, you've been coming here, maybe it's your first time here this week, and you're afraid that I'm going to see you or God's going to see you as you really are. And there's so much shame 
you're so afraid that if God were to really see you as you really are, he wouldn't, you would be the exception to the rule. He wouldn't love you. He wouldn't choose you. He wouldn't want you. And you're so, you have such a fear of condemnation. And I know that in a room like this, there's all kinds of us all across that spectrum and a bunch of us who carry a little bit of both. And so I thought what would be great for us today to close out our time, kind of begin our homework a little early, is to do a little time of prayer of confession where we can confess our love of condemnation and judging others and all the judgments we have and confess our fear of condemnation and just come clean with who we are to God. So I'd ask you, if you would, to take a posture of prayer that we take around here. We open our hands up to God, but I'm gonna ask you a little old school with this one. And I'm gonna ask, ask you to bow your head and close your eyes because I want you to have a more kind of intimate, present moment with Jesus. So if you'd bow your head and close your eyes and open your hands up, I wanna lead you through a prayer of confession right now. That Abba, we just we come to you because you've told us there's no condemnation in you. That that's not that's not what you're about. That's not of you. That what you're about is love and freedom and forgiveness and holiness and righteousness. And God, all the things that we cannot do for ourselves that you pour into us and form us into. And so God, that's what we want. And so God, I pray for every person right now who is so afraid of condemnation. They're so afraid, God, of coming clean. They've been carrying around shame for decades. They've been carrying around shame. And God, I know I'm, I have a strong sense there's folks here right now who just when they think of themselves, all they think of is shame. And maybe it's because of what others told them, or maybe it's what they keep telling themselves and beating themselves up with. It's not of you. God, even at our lowest and most vulnerable place, God, you are with us and you are for us and your love reaches out to us and offers us dignity and offers us freedom and offers us forgiveness if we would only look grace in the eyes and receive it for what it is. And God, I pray for every person here who maybe God has kind of maybe a love of condemnation. They love kind of making others make sure they know how right they are. God, that's in me. I, I am the first to admit that I can be so self-righteous, so right. And God, I confess that. I lay that out to you. God, I, I don't want to be more right than I am in love with you. I don't want to be more right than I am in your presence, God. That's where I want to be. And so, God, I pray for every person here, every stone that is being carried. God, there are stones that we're carrying around about an X. And every time we think of them or their name pops up or an email comes in, God, we just pick up our stone. We're so ready to knock them down. Or, God, maybe it's a coworker, maybe it's a boss. We've got a, man, we've got like a briefcase full of stones that we're just ready to to hurl at them, to say at them, God, or the words that we choose to use, the actions, the passive aggressiveness that we create in the culture around us. God, we confess it to you. We don't want to carry that around. What a burden. We don't want to carry that around anymore. God, I know that there are stones that people are carrying towards religion, towards churches, towards this church. God, there are stones that we even carry around that we want to toss at you for the way things have turned out in our lives. God, we're so angry at you about it. God, we want to judge you for your sovereignty. And God, I just pray you never, ever, ever once created us to carry that burden around. God, would you free us today? Let the sound of those stones falling on the ground resonate throughout this place, God. As we lay down the burdens we were never meant to carry. 
and we stand up and look at you in your eyes and see the love and the grace and the freedom that you have for us. And so here's what I want you to do. I want you to keep your eyes closed right now, but I want you to stand up. I want you to keep your eyes closed, but go ahead, everyone, and stand up right now. And I want you, with your eyes closed, to imagine that you're looking right into the eyes of Jesus. I want you to imagine you're looking right into his eyes right now. And I want you to see what he has for you. That it's not judgment and it's not rejection. And it's not another long list. And it's not another high bar that you could never achieve on your own. It is love. It is love. It is love upon love upon love. It is grace. It's full forgiveness. Not partial. Full. It's freedom. And it's a new life that he's inviting you into. To leave that old life that stone-carrying life, that stone-fearing life, to leave it behind and walk into the new life he has for you. God, because of your love, because of your grace, because of your mercy, may it be so for us. May we look into the eyes of grace and find that you are staring deep into our hearts and souls and calling us into the fullness of who you created us to be. It's in your name that we pray and sing. Amen.